0: Hi, I'm Jason Nias, along with Natalie Wires from Digital River, an e commerce and payments company dedicated to helping brands go global and grow their revenue. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e commerce experiences of our time. Listen on to hear from e commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started and lessons they've learned that have gotten them where they are today and what they believe is the future of online shopping. Hi, this is Jason. My guest today is a veteran of B2B e-commerce. From his experience as a C-level executive at multiple companies to his role as an advisor to worldwide brands. He's also an author with an upcoming book, Billion Dollar B2B e-commerce, a step-by-step guide for executives looking to launch and grow a successful B2B e-commerce business. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Jason. I'm glad to be here.
0: So with that, Brian Beck, please introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Hey, thanks Jason. I'm, I'm really um, pleased to be here with you and great to finally connect with you. We know so many people in common, right? It was a, uh, it was a fascinating time and buying all these companies and when it was a coming out of the Bell um, uh, telephone era really and, and, and consolidating all these companies, and at the time we had, uh, we started some initiatives around music, right? And so AT&T was going to deliver music out to all of its, its, its audiences and through these walled gardens. I don't know if you remember back that far. I think I got a few years on you. You know, of course that didn't necessarily work <laughs> that effort, but I learned a lot. And then I went to work, uh, in e-commerce, uh, uh, for a company called Scient, which was, I was in New York city. And that was a, an early internet agency. Uh, we actually went public and we were all billionaires and I was 22 and I'm kidding. We were not billionaires, but on paper we were. <laughs> and so that was, that was the time. So I've seen a lot, man. I've been through, you know, the early stages of this thing and saw how people worked um, and how we, everybody was venture funded. I saw it blow up in 1999. I was living in the industry. Then I saw it resurge in the early two thousands. I was a CEO of a, of an e-commerce furniture com- home furnishings company, competing with Wayfair and some others for about five years in there, and then got into working with bigger companies. I ran e-commerce for Harbor Freight Tools and uh, Pacific Sunwear and the apparel space and a couple of others. So, you know, everywhere I've been, I've learned a lot of things. I've made just about every single mistake there is to make, and um, and had some successes, fortunately, along the way too. So, it's been an interesting journey. 17 years of uh operating and then the last 4 years or so 5 years as a um an advisor and own I own a company today called Enseba that does Amazon work for brands and uh, manufacturers.
0: Fantastic. Well the yeah. best the best consultants to hire and the best, uh, best authors to read <laughs> are the ones who have learned through their own adventures their own mistakes. So it takes, a, it takes a, a, a strong person to admit that they've made mistakes and they can help other people not make them. So that's great.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And yeah, that is one of the reasons I wrote the book, really, was to – I just see, you know, gosh, 15 years ago, what we were living through in the consumer side of e-commerce is what B2B is going through these days. And there's just so much opportunity there for e-commerce and digital to fully transform these B2B businesses, these traditional you know, uh, industrial and medical products and all these other categories of businesses. And so I'm excited to you know, bring that to that category and at the same time I still work, our company in SIBA still works for some, for some brands that are also selling consumer goods. So I get to see both sides of it.
0: Yeah, well that's perfect because we actually met each other uh, because of, of Corey Case over at Cardinal. Yeah. Um, we did a we did a podcast maybe a month and a half ago. And uh, he had mentioned that one of the people that he gets the most kind of knowledge and insights and direction from is you. And and obviously I reached out immediately knowing uh that if there's someone that's this great in the industry, I have to meet this
1: person. <laughs> well, Corey speaks uh, too highly of me, I think. Let's let's hope their stock price is doing okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I gave him the advice. Anyway, the uh no, Corey's fantastic and I've known Corey for probably ten years, and you know, it's a Cardinal is is a a fabulous company that is, um, you know, it just has its such reach. I mean, it's, I think it's Fortune fourteen or something. It's an enormous company, and you know, companies like that have such an incredible opportunity to digitally transform themselves. And that I was privileged to be able to work with Corey and his team on some of their their uh, personalization and website development and site search things. And so helping companies like that figure that out is what's really fun for me. And, and I, you know, Corey was just a great partner in that.
0: So you're touching on something that I know is germane to most brands, whether you're B2B or B2C, which is the, uh, the balance of their channel. Uh, so you've got the, 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 the B2B direct, you've got Amazon, you've got your traditional, Maybe partners or resellers. What advice? And by the way, full transparency. We're recording this uh, at the end of April, and it'll probably be released sometime early May. So we're right in the in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. Can you share a little bit about conversations that you've had with companies kind of prior to COVID around channel balance, and then maybe pause and then take us to what they're talking about in today's environment?
1: Great, <clears throat> great question, Jason. Um- so what were they talking about before? Well, they were talking about similar things they're talking about now, but the urgency wasn't quite what it is today. Uh, today, you know, one of the things, so, so stepping back a little bit, I have this concept in the book uh, and, it's, and it's really that, it's about, So my cha- second chapter, the leadership imperative is what that chapter is called. And it's all about, you know, companies where leadership has had results in their business which is just good enough. In other words, it's just good enough so they don't have to change their, uh, make changes or, or confront some of the realities of what's happening in the market, which is that business buyers, and consumers for that matter, are, have more power than ever before in terms of the uh, digital, you know, the relationship with companies and brands. And so and that's largely digital, it's digital disruption and so, you know, before this whole COVID thing, we would talk about these concepts, um, but oftentimes they would fall on deaf ears because, you know, the business might be flat or might be growing a little bit. The traditional channels were doing okay, meaning Salesforce, uh, you know, the call center, the fax machine, <laughs> were getting orders, and you know, it was or the stores or the distribution centers, and, um, and and that was just good enough so that the leadership didn't have to confront some of the things that were happening. So we'd have the conversations, but the, the fear of channel conflict and the fear of some other things would prevent action. What I'm hearing now is uh, from companies, I'm getting a lot of calls from companies that are either um, behind, they don't have e-commerce, and now they realize, wow, I have no way to reach my customer, I have no way to talk to them, I have no way to take an order from them uh, if I haven't enabled e-commerce. And e-commerce is you know, for their own direct site, as well as through marketplaces like Amazon. If they haven't fully enabled and controlled these channels, there the urgency so that the, you know, the, the business is just good enough, this is, it's not good enough anymore.
0: Yeah, that went away. <laughs> a,
1: I mean, if this isn't a call to action, guys, I don't know what is, <laughs> right? So, uh, it's a, um, it's, so it's the same concepts in conversation, but now it's with a degree of urgency that is um, is is much higher. The other thing, you know, it's funny. I talked to the CEO of a of a mid market distributor last week. He said to me about a hundred million dollar distributor, and he said, and they and they've been investing in e commerce, both their own site and Amazon, for five, six, seven years. And he says, you know, this is to me, you know, number one. Thankfully, we did this right. We invested in this, and their business is is actually, overall is stable. They still have a lot of brick and mortar they sell to, like just dealers and distributors and retail stores. That's all down, but they have enough e-commerce and they have enough marketplace and other things where they're up. He said to me, number one, thank, thank, thankfully we did that. But then two, he's, he says to me, you know, this is an opportunity for my business. I am positioned now to take all this market share from my competitors. And all those competitors, some of them he doesn't think will even be in business in, in, in a year because they won't be able to weather the storm because they're too dependent on some of the traditional sales channels. So as people, I think this thing has accelerated e-commerce by three to five years and in B2B categories for sure. And even, even with uh, consumers, uh, consumers are already using e-commerce, but you know some aren't using it for everything. Now you have to. <laughs> You've got no choice, right?
0: This is going to separate the herd a little bit in that regard.
1: I definitely think so. Uh
0: is your is your book already being published or can you kind of create a a a 13th chapter called COVID-19 <laughs> in the context of b 2 b
1: You know, I just it it's soft launched about two weeks ago. Um, so we're talking about early April. So it's already in market. I, I would say that, you know, the concepts are all consistent the the, the the concepts haven't changed they're still you know they still apply you know the organizational elements you need the foundational technology you need the digital marketing you need the experience you need on the site all that hasn't changed it's it's more about the uh the urgency and speed at which it can be done so yeah i'd love to write another chapter maybe i'll do an an, an add-on edition or something
0: <laughs> there's got to be a way to, to do a digital add-on or something You buy yeah. up the book you get the digital add-on Uh, remind everybody what the title is billion dollar b2b e-commerce that's right
1: so well yeah good good question it's um because i think it's a billion dollar opportunity or more for for many companies i'm not i mean, not your small companies but let me let me break it down so i think e-commerce can be effective for companies of really any size um i tell the story of uh, this company that I interviewed called Bay Fastening Systems. Bay Fastening is a small distributor, regional distributor that launched e-commerce a few years ago. Um, I did a—I was fortunate to speak with the COO. I think it was maybe a year ago, and he t- he told me that they they doubled the size of the business, like the whole business, not just e-commerce, the business. By introducing e-commerce and, and, and bringing in uh, elements of you know e-commerce onto their site and then um, some of the marketing they did along with that, the digital marketing, the SEO, search engine optimization, other things that were are now driving new customers to his business 10 to 15 a week. It's incredible. So it's, this isn't just reserved for Cardinal Health at $130 billion. This, is, this is, applies to smaller businesses too. So I took the, I took the name from the opportunity. I think it applies. I want to get people excited about this because I do think it's an opportunity and first movers can still make a difference as you could 15 years ago in the uh, consumer marketplace with e-commerce, right? Look at Wayfair.
0: You brought up a good example and I was going to ask a question around that. So B2C e-commerce has evolved amazingly over the, so I've been at Digital River 20 years and from then to now, the world is very, very different. It's sophisticated. It's it is uh, very data driven. It's very modern. Um, I perceive that B two B is still kind of lagging in, in the context of innovation and, and practices and all of those things. How do you do you agree with that? And how far is that gap? Because I also agree with your point. Is is this is accelerating B two be commerce and other commerce three to five years ahead of where it normally would have been?
1: So. Number one, absolutely, I agree with you. I think the business is 10 to 15 years behind consumer in most cases. I think it's, um, but those that have invested have have reaped tremendous rewards. I gave the example of the distributor a few minutes ago. Um, there's other lo- other companies that have um, implemented e-commerce, to see, seeing similar results in incremental revenue and uh, average order values increasing in efficiencies through the organization. So is it behind? Yes, in general, but the ones that have really focused on it and, and taken it on are reaping incredible rewards. And I argue actually that B2B e-commerce, and I've lived in both worlds, can be more personalized and effective even than B2C. And I, and I say that because in the B2B world, you know who your customers are, you know, B2B. When I ran e-commerce you know, at Harbor Freight Tools, we had millions and millions of customers in our database, millions. And we were serving all of them, right? And it becomes an order of magnitude of data science to market to them and personalize experiences and bring you know, really relevant experiences to those folks. Well, a company the same size as a Harbor Freight in terms of revenue that's just selling B2B might have tens of thousands of customers, not millions. And those tens of thousands of customers, you know who they are, you often know what they bought from you, a detail how they use it what the application is that they use those products for i think about some of my clients who make you know fans big ass fans you know who that is it's oh yeah i do fan.
0: absolutely so,
1: right so big ass fans <laughs> that's what they are i'm not cursing everyone i'm yep. not getting censored i hope
0: donkey is the logo that's I'm right yeah no, they're
1: a great company so think about applying i you know if you look if you're in an airport you look up you see a 24 foot wingspan fan that's a Big ass fan, and so uh, the application and how those go into and are used in an HVAC system, heating, ventilation, air, air conditioning system, is, is 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 scientific. It's it's there's specific ways to apply that, and when you're when you're in one of those customers who's a construction company or uh, architecture firm or whatever they might be or an HVAC contracting company is worth a lot of money to a big a company like Big Ass Fans, and and it's and so they'll. They'll buy and install these fans and it's a very technical process and and the knowledge of how to install and utilize those products is really important To the customer and then to the ultimate user of the product. Right. So the the airport or what have you. That's very complex and it's very different than a consumer type sale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The knowledge you have to have on the use case, the support, the installation. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Yep. So so you're, you're a guy that people hire to come in and say, hey, listen, I've, I'm open to the idea of e-commerce, if you're still alive uh, after COVID-19. <laughs> <of>
1: the <laughs> Which the majority of us will, right? Yeah. No, the business, the business. <laughs> um, but
0: but it, if you survive, how do you consult with them? How do you look at their business and say, hey, this is the portion of your business that would be better served via e-commerce? And I'll give you, I'll, I'll lead the witness a little bit. Sure. So you've got got companies who look at the the low end, the underserved portion of their their customer base, and you say, you know what, these are all rebuys or modified rebuys. These are perfect examples of places that we should use e-commerce to automate, getting the reps to work on bigger, more complex deals. Are there scenarios like that, or is that one of the primary ones that you go and say, this is your opportunity to embrace e-commerce?
1: That's a great question. I think, um, so, you know, you have, it's, it's, I'll, I'll give you some specific examples. So I worked with a company a couple years ago called Illumina. And if you guys know who Illumina is, they're a leader in gene sequencing technology. They, they're a um, $3 billion private, or public company, excuse me. And they're, they make the machines that if you guys have ever heard of, like, you know, Jason, you ever heard of 23andMe, for oh. example. Yep. right? It's a uh, sequencing, they sequence your genes and tell you if you're, you know, from Ecuador, that kind of thing. <laughs> so so the, um, the, those companies use aluminum equipment to um, to generate um, these recommendations and, you know, medical experiments and things. When they started e-commerce, they said, heck, you know, we think what's going to sell here is the chemicals that go into these machines, right? The things that are consumables, the things that are reordered, the parts, the the stuff that you know, it gets you know. You don't have to call a salesperson to get. You know what you need, just go online. You sh- can sh- get it. What's interesting though is they started selling their equipment and they started selling online. It's fascinating. So their equipment is you know ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars up to millions of dollars. So but what happens is if the customer knows what they want, and they've they've decided on it, the e-commerce channel is a more efficient, easier way to, to order. And what's fascinating about this is when volumes shift to online, I have a case study about this in the book, you can actually uh, sell at a higher gross margin. Your pricing doesn't necessarily have to be as sharp online. And why? It's because the convenience of placing an order online outweighs the price in many cases. I have a paper company that I have profiled in the book. Um, don't, don't it's under paper. It? No, it's not done, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Dunder. It's, uh, it's called Kelly paper. Uh, and they, um, and they're a division of a, a large privately held company, but they're getting half of their, half of their sales are coming through e-commerce at a 3% higher gross margin. That is very significant for a commodity product. It goes right to the bottom line, 3% of their sales. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of sales. So it's a, um, it, it can be really powerful when you do this. Well,
0: Great, right, And it's a, scalable, repeatable, you have data and you can you can drive the rebuys at a higher rate. So there's probably revenue benefits as a, as well as cost benefits.
1: I, I, absolutely. And and part of the value too is in pushing some of the order volume to to the web or not order volume, but the service aspects so that customers can self-serve on, hey, where's my order? Does this go with that? You know, and kind of understanding more about the product. Downloading information about the product, obtaining support from on the product uh, can all be enabled online. That drives efficiency in the organization.
0: So shifting gears a little bit, I know that you're an expert on Amazon. Obviously, your company helps helps with that with companies and brands. You and I, you'd shared with me previously how much success Amazon has had in B two B, and I think you used the example where they've been in B two B for a very small window of time in a meaningful way, and they've already effectively cotton
1: ranger is that uh yeah it's interesting yes so amazon i admire amazon and and in terms of how well they've executed it's it's a really incredible i think incredible story so they test and learn everything on everything they have the balance sheet to do it granted (laughs) but what they do is they um they they're not afraid to fail Um, and many of our b2b companies are so conservative they never test things So um, Amazon in 2012 started something called Amazon supply, which, um, which didn't work. It was a separate website. It was meant to serve the B2B market. They went to market with it. They didn't get the adoption of the revenue they wanted from it, but they learned a lot of things along the way. So in 2015, after shutting down Amazon supply, they launched Amazon business. And in the four and a half years since then it, yes, it has eclipsed um, the revenue of Granger. Granger is about 11 billion. Amazon business, by most measures, uh, is about 16 billion uh, last year. RBC Capital Markets did a report saying that in December of last year. And so, um, and, and what they projected was pretty incredible growth to 52 billion over the next four years. Amazon business will become one of the largest distributors in the world in B2B categories. In January, it eclipsed uh, AWS as the fastest growing part of Amazon period. So, you know, I mean, this is, it's, so look guys, if you look back, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago at, 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 at the department store category, right? There's some analogies here. And and one of the things, my first chapter of the book is your time is now. And I give the story of Sears, right? And Sears, and where Sears was 15 years ago. And I put some quotes in there from the executives and gosh, I'm not, you know, Sears, uh, it's, it, to me, it's a little sad, to be honest, uh, where they are today, um, and whether or not they'll even get it past this COVID crisis. Um, the, at the same time, Amazon just, you know, exploded, and I think we're gonna see some analogous, unfortunately, cases like this. Uh, if, even if you, the other thing is, if you look at um, where Amazon business is penetrating, so <clears throat> maintenance, repair, and operations, office supplies, Look at the big players there. Look at Staples' performance over the last five years. Look at Rangers' gross margin. It's, it has shrunk by five percentage points over the last seven or eight years. What is that, what's that due to? Well, I believe in part it's due to the, um, some of the competition that's come in, and, and, and Amazon Business is certainly a part of that. It's not the only reason, but you know, it's, it's, it's certainly putting uh, more uh, competitive pressure and, and upping, upping the game. Uh, for some of these traditional distributors particularly if they don't understand their customer really well so it's an interesting dynamic
0: how do you so how do you balance that i mean obviously uh, in the b2b in the b2c context you have examples of companies like target who said you know what we're not going to be good at e-commerce 15 16 18 years ago and and toys r us and they ran it all through amazon they effectively gave them the categories they gave them the customers and they gave them a running head start to being there yep. for that. Do you see B2B brands doing something similar, which is in other words saying, if you want to buy on the web, we're going to send you to Amazon. And they're effectively giving up that traffic that <sighs> volume. Is that happening?
1: Great question. Um, you know, I think B2B companies are, um, they are learning from the B2C, what, what happened in B2C. I think... Um, most of the companies that we work with have multiple channels and as they get into digital, they're thinking about it in a relatively balanced way. So oh, and as an aside, Jason, my son is very sad about Toys R Us. He, he oh. called it, he's eight years old. He he called it Toys R Us. <laughs> Every time we go by the where it used to be, he's like, what happened? Anyway, uh, so, but, but I think that's prescient. I think we have to pay attention to that. And I think, um, I think B2B companies, are, and, and my, here's, here's my point of view on it, Amazon sh- needs to be a part of your strategy if you're B2B or B2C, it needs to be a part of your strategy, you cannot ignore Amazon, 70% of product search is starting on Amazon in the US, it's incredible, you saw the, the numbers I just shared with you, I was just talking about that, that said, if you're a B2B company, you have an opportunity to use Amazon, but also to create a bespoke experience on your own site, um, through your own channels, because ultimately, you know your customer better than anyone else, including Amazon, and you can create an experience that's tailored to that customer, particularly in categories that are highly technical, where there's a lot of consultative uh, uh, you know, need through the sales process and support process. There's uh, it, you know, companies that don't sort of make it through the, you know, the next wave of competition and COVID and everything else, I think are not paying enough attention to their ultimate customer. The customer ultimately who's using the product or if you're a distributor, what value you're truly adding to that customer uh, beyond just price and service. Because guess what? Nobody does price and selection better than Amazon, right? So it's, I, think that, I think they're just, all Amazon is doing is they see opportunity to better serve the customer, your customer, and, if, and it's a call to action for you to better serve your customer with your own digital efforts and then layer Amazon in, it's just a selling channel. It's just an evolution of customer preferences that you can't fight. So don't try to fight it, understand it, confront it, but also react to it and leverage it where you can. Learn from it. I mean, I always encourage distributors to pay attention and learn from Amazon, uh, you know, uh, and learn what they're, what they're bringing to market so you can, you can accommodate. They're setting the bar, right, for what it means to deliver customer service or customer experience online for shopping.
0: How much? So you're leading the witness a little on my next question. How much do you believe in the consumerization of B two B? You hear that? You hear that term or that expression?
1: Yeah, I think you. I think you read chapter. I think it's nine. I haven't read it yet. No, I've,
0: I. I went to your website and it doesn't look like I can get it yet. I signed up. So you got my email. You,
1: it, it Like I said, it's soft launched. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta update my site. Maybe by the time this airs, it will be updated. Um, so. Um, so I talk about, you know, so number one, I think there's a balance, right? I think, I think you have to steal smart from B2C. Um, and that's kind of the theme of, of this chapter is you need, to, you need to steal smart from the B2C experience that's been ingrained into all of your digital native buyers that are coming to market. But then you also need to be practical and, and realistic about the workflows that are required in a B2B setting. What I mean by that is that you know there's differences Uh, and a b2b buyer needs to see their custom price list they need to they they've negotiated a price with you probably if you're a plumbing supply house or distributor you've negotiated from your with your supplier specific set of prices they've got to show up on the website I want to buy on terms from my from my supplier you know Um, and by the way Amazon (laughs) allows that in Amazon business there, you know, I want to be able to use my um, specific uh, payment types, have delivery done a certain way, create custom catalogs that are just for my, for my um, my particular business and use. So there's a lot of differences. That said, 75% of the workforce by 2025 is going to be millennials, 75%, and those millennials born between 1980 and 2000 are digital natives, and they're also Amazon natives. So these folks expect to come to your site and find a way to order, or guess what? They're looking for something else. They don't want to be bothered. They they want they don't want to call the sales rep. They certainly don't want to fax anything in. <laughs> they don't even know what a fax machine is. <laughs> so,
0: that's great. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit to uh, some of the standard questions we ask in all of the podcasts. Okay. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, An example of a great shopping experience, especially in this kind of B2B context, who's doing it really well? Can you point to maybe one of your customers or or an example?
1: Sure. Yeah. And I have a lot of I have a lot of case studies in the book around this kind of thing. Um, About 30. The uh, you know, I could say Amazon, but that's a cop out.
0: (laughs) Don't do that. Come on.
1: So I, um, right. So, you know, I alluded to a little earlier, um, the company um, Illumina, which again is makes medical research and, and gene sequencing equipment. It's an incredible company. And they bring these, um, you know, these products to market that are, you know, they're machines and equipment. And they also have consumables, chemicals that go in, as I mentioned. And Illumina um, launched e-commerce uh, a re, a sort of a refreshed version of e-commerce about three or four years ago and I think they did it really well um, they're doing a number of things that really take uh, the shopping experience and blend the consumer aspects of shopping with the b2b aspects of shopping so I say consumer aspects so number one you know they, they're, they're using uh, site search appropriately they've deployed site search tools which get the product customer quickly to the product they're looking for. They're using conventional type navigational elements. Um, they're using, um, you know, uh, what, <clears throat> what the new B2B buyer expects in terms of product page layouts so that they can see the product. You can't, you can't imagine how many Jason, well you can probably cause you're in this business, but how many companies will put up, you know, uh, e-commerce sites, B2B companies without any product images. Like what does it look like? Sorry, it doesn't work, guys. You got to see the product, right? Um, th- so that's all the basic stuff. So they, they nailed the basic stuff, but even more foundational than that, they went to their customers first and formed a committee to, th- and, and interviewed these folks to understand what they needed to get out of the site when it went live. What were their expectations? So it was about the foundational elements of consumer. But then it was about how do you take all this awesome like B2B process and and, and bring it to life online? So you know, buying on credit terms, um, but even more importantly, personalization. So this company has done more from a personalization perspective than almost every B2C company out there because what they know, they've used Internet of Things. This This is so cool how they're doing these things. They've used Internet of Things to watch how their machines are being used in the research labs and to make product recommendations back to those researchers about how they ought to better use the machines to get better results. And then how, of course, they can use Illumina products to better, you know, that sort of thing. So to better generate results from their experiments. So they're using, they're using personalization in ways that is ahead of B2C in, in many ways. And then they've created a dashboard which allows those researchers and the procurement folks to go in, to manage their, their entire um, experience, to manage their uh, products, to even manage elements of their equipment, um, you know, through this uh, personalized dashboard. And that's what I mean when I say B2B can go even beyond where B2C is from a personalization standpoint, because Illumina doesn't have tens of millions of customers. They have a defined set of customers and it's Stanford University and, you know, 23andMe and people like that. So anyway, that's, so that's a cool shopping experience. I can't show it to you though. You need to be a genetic researcher. I
0: know, I was just going to go look it up, but I didn't yet. That's fantastic. Well, that's definitely the most unique example anyone's given and thank I'll you for bet. not choosing Amazon. Right. Uh, okay. Well, that's excellent. So, you know, obviously, you've been in the industry a long time. You were in e-commerce. Basically, when it wasn't anything meaningful, now it's obviously huge. Where do you get your insights? Where do you continue to stay fresh and cutting edge? Who influences you?
1: I talked to this guy named Corey Case. In just case. yeah. Exactly. Well <laughs> no played, Corey. Back at you, man. Uh, the uh, <laughs> no, Corey's great. Um, so, a couple places. You know, one of the things that I, um, you know, I, I get information from a lot of different sources uh, and sort of, you know, filter it. But, you know, I like to, um, I like to talk with uh, Andy Hoare. I don't know if you know who Andy yeah, is. Yeah, the
0: death of 2 B2B the, salesman. Everybody yeah. says him in B2B.
1: Yeah, Andy's great. And he and I have a regular dialogue. I, I, I work with him on his B2B Next conference and some other things. And Andy uh, and I are always constantly sharing ideas and what we're seeing in the marketplace. So he's certainly one. Justin King uh, is another that I talk with. Um, Justin is a uh, thought leader, particularly in the, in the distribution area. Um, so Justin's great. Uh, and he and I, I have a similar relationship to Justin as I do to Andy. And then I'd say, you know, in the world of Amazon, um, you know, I'm a student of, um, I'm a student of Bezos, uh, meaning that I study him and how he developed his business. He doesn't talk a lot in public, but I have, uh, I read his shareholder letters. I, um, you know, I look at his, um, any, you know, things he's, he's done in the past. And then I love to get different perspectives on Amazon too. So I I also listen to, um, uh, fellow named Scott Galloway. Sometimes he's, uh, yeah, he's just got, he's just super sharp. I don't always agree with him, but he's, he's super sharp and has a real, you know, um, good perspective. I think well-informed perspective um so uh, and and he challenges some of my thought and some of my uh, assumptions as well so i love that so those are some of the folks that i listen to and follow i love that and
0: are you a podcast listener do you do you have a a series of podcasts on your phone that you there is a
1: yeah i'm glad you asked that jason there is a uh there's a really great podcast i just listened to in fact scott was on it uh it's called land of the giants and it's a Vox podcast. You have to check it out. It's, it's really, I've told a bunch of people about it. It's, um, it's a series. It's not a ongoing podcast. It's a series of podcasts. I think it's eight or 10 episodes, but it's just so fascinating. They talk about, it's about Amazon, of course. And they talk about, but you know, what, what happens when Amazon comes to your town and builds a distribution center and there's hundreds of thousands of people that work there or whatever, you know tens of thousands. And then they leave. What happens to the community, right? Fascinating. Does Amazon, you know, how, how is Amazon, you know, how did it get to be where it is? How is it, you know, from the financial perspective, uh, you know, from Wall Street perspective, how do they build the business? How do they weather the crisis in the early 2000s when, you know, the, the world was falling apart? I lived through that and all the internet businesses had no money because no one would fund them. How did they live through that? These are like really interesting questions. So I, I, I mean, to me, that was one of the most impactful podcasts I've listened to in quite some time. I just, I found it fascinating. I'm supr-
0: so not surprised you picked one that has Amazon roots to it, but I'm a little surprised you didn't say the Jason and Scott show, <laughs> uh, you know, those guys, cause they talk about Amazon all the time. almost yeah, every I
1: episode. I do. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've heard a few podcasts. So I can't say I've listened to that many of them, but I, but thanks for the recommendation. I will, I will listen more.
0: That's one, of, well, that's one of mine. I wanted to get my recommendation. In of here, course, so. man. <laughs> well, if, uh, if people want to get in touch with you and kind of learn from your experience, how should they do it? Is there a, is it LinkedIn? What do you recommend?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, LinkedIn certainly is a good place um, to follow. I publish a fair amount and uh, to follow my publish, my, my articles and things. And, you know, they can, they can just email me, brian at B-R-I-A-N at nceiba, E-N-C-E-I-B as in boy, A.com, nceiba.com.
0: Wonderful. Well, Brian, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for spending the day with us. Uh, Before we go, tell us what life is like in L.A. with clean air and no traffic.
1: (laughs) Very, very strange.
0: (laughs) Well, Brian, thank you so much for spending the uh, afternoon with us. I do hope people reach out to you Uh, You're a wealth of knowledge in commerce, B2B, kind of all things Amazon. So thanks again, Brian, and and very much appreciate it.
1: Thanks for the opportunity, Jason. I really appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to the Commerce Connect podcast, brought to you by Digital River and edited at Matriarch Digital Media in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To learn more, head to digitalriver.com.